You're now experiencing data with Brian O'Neill. Experiencing data explores how product managers, analytics leaders, data scientists, and executives are looking at design and user experience as a way to make their custom enterprise data products and analytics applications more useful, usable, and valuable. And now, here's your host, the founder and principal of Designing for Analytics, Brian O'Neill. On my chat today with Bill Byther, the CEO of Machine Metrics, uh, we talked about UX in the world of industrial IoT. Machine Metrics has a great platform for monitoring the run rate, cycle times, and status of large uh, CNC and industrial manufacturing equipment. Uh, this is a challenging space for uh, user experience, and Bill's going to talk a little bit about uh, how machine metrics goes about um, making the analytics and data coming off of these machines useful to the operators and people that uh, need this information. So here's my chat with Bill. Hello, and welcome back to Experiencing Data, everyone. Today, I have Bill Byther on the line from Machine Metrics. Bill, welcome to the show. You're the co-founder and CEO, is that correct? Yes, I am. That's awesome. Thanks. And yeah. your IoT space, right? And you're going to talk to us about user experience around monitoring CNC machines primarily. Is that right? Can you tell us the types of equipment that, that machine metrics is, is monitoring and, and a little bit more about your background in business? Sure. Um, yeah. So we are a, a machine monitoring manufacturing analytics platform. And uh, we've really focused on CNC equipment. So these are like uh, lathes, mills, grinding machines, uh, basically the machines that, that make metal parts um, in, in industries like aerospace, uh, automotive, medical device, and, and others. And um, you know, my background is um, I, I'm a degree mechanical engineer, um, but also a serial entrepreneur. Um, I, I started my career in aerospace manufacturing uh, then uh, this is uh, machine metrics actually is my my third startup um, this one is you know, is really focused on on really data from from machines and, and leveraging that that data to to help companies uh, you know, drive, drive production and, and their efficiency through the machine data that we collect sure and I'm curious if I can translate to maybe to some of the people listening that aren't as familiar with this if I understood correctly the primary value here is in things like predictive maintenance, uh, knowing how efficiently the, these machines are working such that they can be tuned or addressed for longevity, cost savings, quality, output, those kinds of things. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, uh, to be honest, it's even simpler than that. Um, uh-huh. Just to you know, frame a problem a little bit. You know, if you walk through a, a, a shop, you know, a factory, you'll, you'll probably notice that there's um, a lot of expensive equipment. You know, machines, they could be custom equipment or you know, CNC machines, plastic injection molding. And, and these machines, um, they can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, sometimes millions of dollars. And uh, they collect a lot of data, but this data is not really being leveraged to, you know, to make decisions. You know, often that, you know, that the operators that are on those machines, they, you know, they have a, a limited view into in what, to, what those machines are doing. But it's just that the data isn't really being collected anywhere. Um, these machines aren't really networked. And uh, so there's a lot of opportunity to, to use that data to, uh, one, improve visibility on the shop floor. One of the questions I like to ask people in manufacturing is, um, what do you think the, um, the average utilization rate is of a CNC machine? And uh, I'll ask you that, Brian. Like, what do you think that the average utilization rate is uh, of a CNC machine? Do you mean in terms of like, 
for every business hour, how many hours is it actually doing? Yeah, it's, a, <laughs> it's 24 seven, you know, I'd like say last year, you know, for a, a typical machine that might cost like $300,000. Like what would be the utilization rate that you'd expect that machine to run? You know, it's a, you know, it's a pretty big investment. You know, you have to pay thousands of dollars a month and financing that machine. What, uh, what well, do you I would assume that they would want something that expensive running as much as possible to keep it going. So I would, I would say maybe they're shooting for 80 to 90% utilization just so it's, it's producing value. I don't know. What is it? So it's 29.7%. So there's a, there's a huge opportunity for improvement. Um, and, and the reason for that is uh, there's, there's not a lot of visibility into, you know, when those machines are operating and also, you know, a, a, often you'll see machines that are down for maintenance due to, you know, some issue where they're not being staffed properly. And uh, having that data in real time on the, on the shop floor to, you know, keep those machines running, meet their goals. And what we've seen is that just by having a real-time dashboard that shows the production of those machines, uh, we're improving efficiency by more than 20%. But yeah, so that's just the, fir- the first step of you know, very simple kind of low-hanging fruit in manufacturing is just uh, improving visibility. Wow, that, that sounds like such a major gap in the core product itself. Although I can see, right, like this is a great example of like thinking about the UX from the perspective of an entire business and not just, you know, machine number seven, right? Because even if you stuck a screen on machine number seven and it gave a readout of what the current status is, is it running? It's 89% done with the current job. That doesn't help you if you're 400 feet away in a different part of the factory floor, right? So that summary is, is just as important. You can't really solve that, right? With just plopping a screen onto every CNC machine that comes along, you need to some kind of roll up for the business to kind of see overall what's happening. Am I correct? Yeah. And, and this is why like one, uh, what our customers like to do is they, they'll, they'll install big screen TVs that are like hanging from the, you know, from the ceiling and it will show like the entire cell of machines. And, and we, each machine is represented by a tile and the color of that tile indicates, you know, not just the status of the machine, but if that machine is meeting its goal or not. And uh, so you know, what, what we'll see is, is we'll see like a, a production manager um, that might be responsible for a, a group of machines. At the end of the day, they'll look up at that screen and they'll see all green. And the server customers will take a picture and post it to Facebook, say, hey, this is a good day. You know, we, you know, I, all my machines are green. So that, you know, those, you know, simple visualizations can really make a very tangible difference in, in performance. So that's really where we started with machine metrics. But, um, but then you also mentioned like, well, what if they're not even on the shop floor? If they're, if you have a, um, you know, VP manufacturing, they're, you know, really trying to get a, a sense of, of what's, um, what's happening, um, you know, where historically have those machines performed compared to where they are today. By collecting that data, we, we give like a full descriptive analytics solution that can, you know, identify trends and problems in, in their manufacturing and they can make better decisions. And uh, so what we actually provide is, you know, I look at manufacturing analytics as sort of four steps. There's descriptive analytics, which is really focused on say what, what's happening now and what's happened in the past. There is diagnostic analytics, which is really going very deep into the sort of the detail, in our case, the detailed machine conditions and understanding why the problem is occurring. Then you have predictive analytics, which is really focused on, you know, on identifying when a problem might happen in the near future. And then prescriptive analytics, which is, which is not only identifying um, what's 
what might happen, but you know, this is what you need to do to prevent that problem from happening. And uh, so what, what we've done is that while the low-hanging fruit has been in the descriptive and just improving the visualization, uh, we, we're leveraging that data, we're, we're applying machine learning, and you know, we can, you know, our customers themselves can configure uh, you know, triggers and rules to notify the right person at the right time to take action and to, to make change or prevent a problem from happening. And that's where we get more into the predictive analytics and, and predictive maintenance that you're, you referred to earlier. So from a design perspective, then, do you think of the process of designing these experiences, like, for example, in the, in the last one you talked about, and this is typical, right? There's like a recommendation being generated from the data, but there could be like a life cycle involved with that, right? Such as, did I acknowledge the alert? Okay, yes, I did. Did I schedule some maintenance on the machine? Do I need to tell your system that I did do maintenance on the machine so that your data can adapt to that information and say, okay, this something happened here. So when we correlate this again in the future, we should know that was a service date. That's not an anomaly. That's the kind of the difference between like an experience and just thinking about what's the UI. Oh, it sends out an email and an alert with an icon that says your machine is going to fail the next 12 days. It, the whole experience is bigger. So can you talk to us about how you go about designing those experiences, particularly when there's multiple steps, whether it's prescriptive or not as fancy as that, just kind of that end-to-end experience? How do you guys think about that and, and approach it? Well, it's actually really hard. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, you know, so UX is, is challenging. And I mean, one example would be, so we rolled out a machine learning algorithm that detects anomalies, you know, and, it, and it's for a particular segment, a particular type of production, like a higher production environment, particular type of machine. And uh, we rolled this out and we, we're, we're trying to figure out, okay, is this really providing value for our customers? And, you know, we have, um, and this is running on thousands of pieces of equipment. And uh, we had a lot of trouble because we'd have to go through every one and kind of like look through the data and like, was this a real, you know, real problem or not? And, uh, you know, we end up calling the customers and find out that, you know, we've actually saved one customer from causing thousands of dollars of damage to their parts and, you know, detecting a, a tool breakage. But, um, but one of the, the pieces of the UI that we didn't have is sort of that feedback mechanism. So yeah, we can send an alert to say, hey, there's an anomaly, but we never really built in the, the feedback loop to say that, hey, did this actually prevent a problem? And this is actually a recent feature that we added. So on our roadmap, I can't say that we actually um, built this out yet. It's the whole mechanism to provide that feedback loop so it actually trains our model. Um, now, not to get too technical, but this is an unsupervised machine learning algorithm. So in that case, we don't need to train it. Mm-hmm. But um, but there's other opportunities for supervised algorithms, and what's really um, what's really interesting about our data sets, we have so much data, but that piece that really add enormous value is that that human feedback, right? So knowing that you know a failure actually occurred, sometimes we can't get that from the machine data itself, and we need the human to tell us that a problem occurred, and uh, so. You know, I mean, that's one example of kind of like a multi-step. I'm not sure if that's exactly what you're asking about, but that's uh, what came to mind. How did you know it was multi-step? Is it because you got feedback that something was wrong or you talked to the customer about what would you do with the alert and then they kind of gave you some feedback and then you guys adjusted the product to that? And, and how do you inform that process of getting it right, so to speak? Again, from that customer experience, right? Because ultimately they probably just care about do I need to like shut this thing down and call the repair guy or, 
or can I keep it running? I'm guessing a lot of their decisions come down to that or I, is it that simple or not quite? Yeah, it's it's not quite that simple. I mean, often the messages that we that we send out are we don't really know for sure whether you know whether we've really, you know, we've really detected that there's there's a problem. We we have to learn from that. So mm-hmm. we're constantly, you know, talking to our calling our customers and and you know, trying to figure out, you know, if we have to tweak the algorithm, and you know, in that case, it's really uh, sort of a manual process for us to you know pick up the phone and uh, and determine if if this is enough, or do we need to take it a step further in our product? You know, today, I mean, we're we're a young uh, startup. We basically haven't really brought on professional product managers until very recently. Uh-huh. So it's been a lot of um, you know, sort my CTO, myself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're the ones that are you know really. You know, tied into the customer and asking them these questions. You know, since then, we built out, we're building out, you know, a product management team, and uh, it'll be a little easier for us to to spend that time talking to our customer and getting more immediate feedback. Sure, sure. I'm curious, like in my experience working in this space, the sometimes you get into issues with, like, especially if you're doing predictive maintenance, everything tends to be based on historical data and looking at patterns. And sometimes you get into issues around seasonality, right? Where there, there's a, a life cycle or something's on a you know 42 day average cadence and then something changes. Do you guys have to deal with anything like that? Or is it, is it more like, you know, if they do maintenance on the machine, you reset its score at zero or, or maybe a hundred percent and you can only go down. And so you don't really have to think about calendar cycles or, or anything like business cycles or anything like that. Do, is, is seasonality related to any of the work you do? Is that a challenge or not so much? Well, I think the biggest challenge for us isn't so much seasonality, but it's the fact that most of our customers are changing over their jobs you know, the parts that they manufacture all the time. So we have to, uh, we have to reset every time that they're making a new part. Ah, okay. So it's particularly the, you know, the case for uh, discrete manufacturing equipment. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you get these, like these, these custom manufacturing lines that they just make one system, that's it. And it's a little easier to, to build out a predictive maintenance algorithm on that because nothing ever changes. Maybe now you're looking at the seasonality or humidity and things like that to, you know, to affect quality. Uh, for us, it's um, you know it's a, it's a little more challenging just because, like I said, the biggest variable is the actual part that you're making it could be a different material, complete different geometry. So what we have to do is we actually, in a lot of cases, you know, a part will be made, you know, say three months ago, and it'll be made again, you know, so last week, and we have to we we basically have to compare the differences, and sometimes you see that you know the anomaly might be that you know, something has changed over the course of the last few months on the machine itself. And looking at the data, um, you might be able to provide just enough information to the operator of the machine or to the technician to, you know, to identify a particular problem. We might not be able to understand that as much as our customer, but by giving them the information, hey, you know, the, your, your cycle time has changed significantly over the course of the last few months, that could be enough information to, you know, to identify a problem. Got it. Thinking about this from an experience standpoint, even the, okay, today I'm, I'm making aluminum cylinders and then tomorrow I'm making, I don't know, a strut for a car or something, right? And so the, the mold's different or whatever, the programming is different for the machine, et cetera, et cetera. Do you let them reset that as part of the experience? So does the system, like, for example, maybe it starts sending out like crazy anomalies, like the first hour that it's using a new 
pattern and then they go in and give feedback to the system and say, oh, no, 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 I'm not doing cylinders anymore. I'm doing struts. And then through the tool, they reset that or is that all like work you have to do like behind the scenes? They have to kind of tell you, hey, we're, we're doing struts starting in April. Can you get ready or like, can you talk, talk to us about that like experience? For, for modern machines, we can we typically get the, um, the program that's running. Mm-hmm. So we basically, we know as soon as the program changes that there's something different being, being manufactured. Oh, okay. Um, so that, that makes that easier. So we, re, you know, we can reset it. Mm-hmm. But for older equipment where we're just using sensors, it can be more challenging because you see that pattern change. Mm-hmm. So we actually, we have algorithms that run the background that can actually detect that, oh, okay, so we call it regime change. We're now doing something very different. And uh, so we're not relying in that case on the operator to tell us that it's okay. changed. Uh-huh. We can. Uh, we give that. We we have a, a touchscreen interface that optionally can be installed right next to the machine that provides that human feedback. But we we try not to rely on that that manual feedback if we if we don't need it. Got it. It's surprising, you know. I, in my work with analytics and a little bit of IoT as well, you rarely see just the simple ability to drop a note or an annotation in somewhere to inform, especially if you're in a team situation. Can you speak to that? Maybe that's not even the right tactic, but I've seen scenarios where there's just some of the information is in the heads of the people and it's not in the data. It's qualitative in nature. Like I looked at this, the, you know, the cycle time was just fine. I don't know why it's reporting this. So for me, this is, you know, false positive or whatever. And they want to annotate that somewhere in there. So the next guy doesn't start at step one when he comes and looks at it. Do you, do you think about any of that or is that relevant in your space or not so much? It actually is very relevant. So, you know, I was alluding to before we have an operator interface, which is a a simple touchscreen. And the way that's used is if, um, for example, if the machine is down, we don't always know why the machine is down. So we rely on the operator to to tell us why. So essentially they'll, um, so as, Supposed to having the operator just like just kind of thinking about oh you know I need to inform the system that you know th- this is what happened to the machine we'll we'll ask the operator hey the machine is down you know can you tell us more about it so mm-hmm. they um, they're able to you know type in what it was that was a problem and we also give them the ability to categorize that downtime so each of our customers can you know, they can create their own categories so that um, so that they know what their most common reason. For downtime actually is. This actually kind of leads into sort of the user experience. By doing that, one of the things that we've found out is that by giving our customers the ability to create their own categories, the number one reason for downtime ends up being no operator available. Hmm. And the problem with that is that doesn't really answer the question of why the machine is down. It just means that, you know, that, okay, the machine was down for a particular reason. Uh, there's typically one operator for like four or five machines. So by the time that the operator comes around to that machine, it's down. Well, okay, I wasn't there to fix it. That's not really the root cause. So what we're um, really working on from a UX point of view is to be really is to just ask the question, just to give a yes or no. So you, leveraging the data. So we're, we're working pretty hard at, at this that we can, we can gain understanding. We think that the machine is down because of, you know, that there was a tool change, but we don't know 100% for sure. So we asked the operator just yes or no. Hey, um, was this a tool change? Was that why this is down for the last 30 minutes? And, uh, you know, we're, we want to do that because then it, it, it'll make it easier. The operator, all, all they have to do is say, just tap yes or no. 
They don't have to think about, well, what category? How do I categorize this? Instead of being, oh, I just, you know, I wasn't there at the machine, so obviously it was operator not available. We can get, a, you know, essentially better information as to why the machine was down because we, we rely less on the operator having to really think about, well, you know, how do I categorize this or what, what annotations, what notes do I, do I include so that my manager can really understand. Sure, sure. So in this case, are you saying that the telemetry coming from the hardware doesn't indicate whether there's a fault or whether or not the machine is just not in use and it can't distinguish between those? And so you require that human feedback or maybe I misunderstood? Because we, we have thousands of different types of equipment, different faults. Uh, we know what the fault is. The machine will report that. Mm-hmm. But we don't often know, well, why was that machine involved? Um, so that's where the, the operator can really help us add more context. We don't want to give them free reign as to just, you know, hey, tell us what happened. We want to basically, you know, carve out only the reasons that it could be, you know, if it's a, you know, if it's a fault that seems to be related to a, you know, a tooling issue, then we just ask them about the tooling and that's it. So we, we really, we frame the, the reason into just a, a minimal amount of options. Got it. So because some of it's, it's like, well, that's nice to know, but that's never going to affect the quality of the product. It's just, you no, know, it becomes noise. Well, no, I think it's just that you, if you provide too many choices, then actually at the end of the day, it's not going to be used. Right. So true. it just needs to be super, super simple. And mm-hmm. that's really what we've learned by, you know, having this you know, operator feedback is you need to simplify it as much as possible. And, and all the work that we do in, you know, adding more intelligence to the product is just making the experience simpler and simpler. A lot of companies like they, and I'm not saying you do, they pay lip service to simple. And to me, simplicity is really hard. It's not, it's not even that it's hard. It's just, it takes time because it requires empathy and it requires going in and really getting into the head into the job or the life of the person that's going to use the tool to understand like, what's it like being on a shop floor running eight different CNC machines if you've never talked to someone, it's really hard to empathize with them. So I'm curious, like from your experience talking to these operators and, and all of that, is there a design change or a UX change that you guys made based on that feedback that was particularly memorable that you could share? Like, man, we never would have thought to do it that way. But when we found out, you know, this guy has, I don't know, seven screens open at once and he can't do X and he can't hear anything and he can't hear the ding. So we change it to a notification, you know, something like that. Do you have any stories that you could share? There's so many. <laughs> I mean, it's clear that, I mean, you have to talk to a customer to really understand how, you know, how they're really using the product. I mean, we're uh-huh. a lot of software developers and, and um, you, you know, we can't begin to understand how it's actually being used in the shop floor until you actually go there. Mm-hmm. But, um, but one, one in particular, we, we actually supply these tablets for our customers and they're Samsung Galaxy tablets. And they uh, went through a change and the aspect ratio actually changed on the tablet. And we had no idea. We never really took a close look at the impact that that had. So we started you know, deploying these tablets that were widescreen versus uh, not, you know, not as wide. And, and there was an, an area of the product that was really used a lot, which basically would indicate, you know, how far along in their work order have they, you know, how many parts have they completed compared to goal. And it became so small that, the, uh, especially the so like the older operators, they couldn't see it, and uh, you know without us, and they don't really have the the direct connection to us. Usually, it's the you know it's the manufacturing engineer or the production supervisor. So it was only when we went and actually visited 
that you could see the operator sort of squinting to read, you know, how far along they were that we understood that we, um, we never really tested that new aspect ratio with, with a customer. So we had to redesign the UI just, you know, just to support, I mean, essentially an, an older workforce that couldn't see, you know, as well as that the young engineers could see. And I'm curious, was that part of your a routine visit or were you there for a different reason and noticed this? Like, how, how did you? It, it was, it was just, uh, I think it was, um, uh, in this in this case, it was uh, one of our customer success managers that noticed it. Um, they were typically will actually onboard our customers remotely, but you know sometimes if it's convenient or if it's a larger customer, we'll go on site, and that's when we discovered this. Well, I talk about this a lot on my on my list about going and talking t- to people, partly because you don't know what you don't even know to ask about. You you wouldn't even probably ask them about resolution on the <laughs> on the screen because you don't. It's just not even in your headspace. And that's part of the reason why it's really valuable to have routine visits and talking to customers because you just don't know what else might be going on. Even if you go in there with a script, right, and a bunch of questions, there's always going to be surprises. And sometimes there's really great information to be had to inform your design just by doing some observations. So I think that's that's great that you guys are doing yeah, and, and And that's why I'm so excited that we we just brought on a new VP of product and we're, we're really focused more on product management. Got it. It'd be interesting, um, you know, six to 12 months from now, you know, after having an actual product management team, you know, how much more impactful that'll be on our, you know, on our product itself by having a whole team that's focused on going on site, talking to customers, getting feedback and having that be, you know, on a daily basis, um, you know, iterated back into, um, into the, the, the product itself. Sure, sure. Yeah, no, I'm sure you'll probably see an impact on that just with increased velocity. And that's one of the things you don't have to go in and do great research. You can go in and just start doing research and learn on the way. It's not binary, right? You can just start doing it and you'll get better at doing it over the time. And a lot of it's just watching and listening. And and so I, I'm always an advocate for doing it and not worrying about doing it well. Just get it started. That's the hardest part. It's like going to the gym, right? I always tell you, it doesn't matter what exercise you do. Just go and start. That's usually the biggest hang up. And then you can always get better at <laughs> making your workout, you know, uh, optimal. So to speak, uh, I, I agree 100. percent And you know, sometimes it's hard. You know, as you're you know, start out with just three of us to start. You know, now we're almost 50. Well, at some point during that, you know, three to to 50 people, like when do you really start going to the customer as a regular basis, mm-hmm. right? So we did it right at the beginning. We built the product. We might have you know gone back for you know a couple times, but you you really need to build that into your into your workflow into your product development workflow. And and I can tell you that for a while there. We, uh, uh, we didn't do that as well as we could have. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, if I had to do over, I would have, even without a product manager, I would have made sure that somebody was responsible for going to the customer, even though it feels like it's a lot of extra work. It's definitely worth it. What was the pain that made you decide I'm not doing that that way again? Oh, I mean, um, why didn't we go to the customer enough? What was no, the pain? No, like what I heard from you is like, I'm not going to maybe start up a new product that way again without going and doing that earlier. Oh. What pain did you go through to to learn that? Was it like, oh my God, we just spent five months of engineering on, yes. you know, on the wrong thing? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we, we get, um, you know, a feature request from a customer um, and then... <laughs> Yeah, like we'll spend a few months building it. And then when we actually, um, you know, we actually put it in front of them, we realized that what they wanted was something different. So we didn't spend enough time with them really going through, showing them wireframes and like, you know, is this going to be useful? And we've wasted a lot of engineering time on that. Sure. And, sure. you know, it, it's, uh, yeah, I, I'm sure that we could have probably um, 
you know, we probably be, if we really did this properly, um, we would probably be six months ahead of where we are right now. Wow. Six months. That's, that's, <laughs> that's a long time in startup world. That's, that's, that's expensive, but you know, it's the learning, right? You got to go through that process to see it. And, and but I think it, you know, I think it's, but I think it's common, right. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's, um, you know, often, um, you know, like that's, that's why companies pivot, right. They realize that they, they don't have it quite right. You're iterating, you're, you're getting the product right, the product market fit. And, um, you know, those that can do it faster end up um, farther ahead. I think part of this is like, and maybe, maybe, I don't know, I'd be curious your thoughts on this, but the fact it's, it's a lot faster these days to build a product to get going. Like the software engineering life cycles are so much faster that in a way I feel like that actually does not drive people to go do more research because there's this perspective that, oh, we'll just change it. We'll just get something out there and then we'll change it. I feel like that the fact we can do, like you don't need to build an authentication, a login system. You know, you go go to Git and check out some code and you've got a full-blown, you know, authentication system in a day, you know, or whatever. But when you can do it really fast, it feels like there's always going to be time to adjust it. And, and most of the time what I see with engineering companies is they're really just doing more and more incremental development. They're adding the next feature on. They rarely go back and actually do the iteration until there's like a major catastrophe or there's a serious revenue impact or there's some kind of crisis at which point it's like now you have all that technical debt that you have to kind of carry along or, you know, adjust. It's really hard to build the new right features on top of that. And uh, a lot of it, it's just, it's cheaper to do it, you know, to look at paper and, you know, to do it without going into code too quickly. I don't know. What do you, what do you think? I, about I think that um, that might be the perspective and that's probably the perspective that we had <laughs> up until recently. Uh-huh. But then you look at how, you know, what features are actually being used. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a, there's a one that I can think of where a customer had this very specific requirement. They wanted this dashboard laid out a certain way and like, Hey, that sounds actually like pretty straightforward. It sounds like I think others would, would want this, but instead of going to a bunch of other customers and asking them like, let's build it. So we went and we built it and it uh, looks nice. Took a month or so of development. Um, and then we launched it and then <laughs> we realized that nobody else is using it. Right. You know, we didn't talk to enough customers. We only talked right. to one. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that month could have gone into building a higher priority feature that, um, that would actually be used by, you know, all or most of our customers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, by not going through that process, this is why I say all this adds up. You know, I say six months. You know, it's, it's not that difficult to see how something like this could, you know, really cause you to go down the wrong, the wrong path. You need that customer feedback continuously. Sure, sure. And one thing I would say, too, to like to, to people who are listening you know, from a research perspective, while again, I, I applaud getting in there and starting to have the conversations, one of the key things I think is really important to getting the design right is to not go in there and think that your job is to find out what people want or to get the specs for what they're asking for written down so you can go off and provide that. The real value of the research is asking why and how and getting to the root problem and defining that problem really well. That's that's the insight you want to get. They may have some good design ideas, but most customers aren't designers. And so you have to know how to interpret when they say on the dashboard, I really want on the left side, I want to see cycle time. And on the right side, I want to see, and it sounds like they're giving you the answer. They're giving you the recipe, but you can end up creating all of that stuff that they asked for and then have no engagement with it 
because they're not really actually aware of what the right design is for them. They're just aware of their own world. And so my recommendation is look at that as a learning experience on what the problem is. It's all about informing that and not necessarily giving people what they ask for. Our, our job as designers is to give people what they need. And, and most of the time, if you get that right and it's valuable, they will love it because it may not be what they expected, but they will probably love it if you're making their life better. I don't know. <laughs> my little rant on that. That's 100% agreed. Um, jumping to a little different topic here, I'm curious, like, is there a gap between the data and telemetry coming off of these machines and the, the domain and the language of the floor operator or the person overseeing operations? Is it kind of like two worlds or do they really speak like every telemetry, you know, every different data point and metric? They know what everything is and they know these machines in and out because, you know, like a lot of people don't, a DSLR camera, for example, a lot of people don't know what half of those things, they don't know what f-stop is and they don't know how to interpret some of this stuff. They just want to take good pictures. So I'm curious, can you talk a little bit about the data that's coming off and have you guys had to kind of design uh, an easier system on top of this because the telemetry is difficult or is it pretty straightforward like the types of data you get and the operator understanding of that domain? I, I guess that it depends on who we're talking to. I mean, an operator... Um, there's certain uh, there's certain data items that they would fully understand. It would, it would make sense, and, and it helps their business. But you know, out of the hundred data items that we're collecting, it might be like five or six that are interesting to them. But then a you know a maintenance manager might be another set of data items, and then the executive. Well, they don't even care anything about the machine data. They just want to know like like what's the performance of the machine. So you really need to develop a system that provides the the, um, the useful information to the right person. And, uh, you know, that can be tricky if you're trying to build out like one product, you know, user experience. Um, that's where you have different aspects of, of the product, different jobs that you're helping to automate um, segmented in your application. So, you know, an example of that is, um, you know, we, we help machine builders basically improve the service of their customers' equipment. So with machine metrics, we're actually um, streaming this data right from their machines so that when, when a machine has a problem, they'll call up their machine builder or the service provider. And um, we've specifically added these very detailed diagnostic parameters that I have no idea what they are. They're literally all these like numbers. And, but for the, the service manager, they know exactly that, okay, if, if this machine you know, is, is down for this alarm and, and diagnostic 101 is bit is set to, set to zero, that means that the solenoid is stuck. So we'll send out a new solenoid. And that's, that's the type of information that's really hard to get to, one, without talking to the actual um, user, which would be the service provider. But that information also wouldn't be useful to anybody else. Got it. And I'm curious, are you tracking, like, so if there's the, who's a maker of a CNC machine? I don't know who makes these Siemens. So, um, so like Mazak, for example, they're, they're a maker of a CNC machine. Got it. So if there's like the Mazak Alpha 1 machine, are you looking at all of the alpha ones across all the machine metrics and starting to learn about the telemetry off these machines and like maintenance cycles and using the world's data on those that you're collecting to inform one customer or, or does it only look at that one environment, that one factory and it doesn't know about all the other, uh, Mazax, I think you said it's called. Yeah. Yeah. So you just hit on what, what makes machine metrics so valuable. Um, we are connected to thousands of machines across 
hundreds of, of different companies mm-hmm. and we're able to learn from, you know, that, that same exact machine that's installed in many different companies. We can aggregate that d- data, learn from that data, and then, you know, understand what the failure modes are. Um, and, you know, normally, like if you were just at one plant, you wouldn't have enough data to really, you know, build enough information. Right. To, so like say, you know, develop a machine learning model. But because we were connected to hundreds of these machines across different different uh, different companies, um, that we're, we're able to learn so much more and provide that back to our customers with real mm-hmm. value. I would think those manufacturers might be, like you might have a secondary product here. <laughs> I don't know about the, the information you're collecting. Um, maybe, I don't know, do they, did those companies have uh, call home, you know, technology inside them already? No, no. Like, oh, <laughs> no, okay. it's, it's not, they, they don't, um, the ones that do, um, it, it's architected in a very different way where you need to like VPN onto the network to get information. Ah, okay. So, you know, in, in, you know, in our, in our case, we have an edge device that can connect over, you know, over the, the company's Wi-Fi or cellular, and it's just over uh, an encrypted SSL or connection. So an HTTP connection. So in that case, you don't have to VPN in and that, that information is, is, uh, is sent to the machine metrics cloud. And, and we are working with machine builders because, you know, this is information that they don't have themselves mm-hmm. that, that we're able to, um, you know, we're able to help our partners build better equipment with the information that, that we're, we're collecting. What's the um, experience like when you buy this product? Like I, sometimes we talk about onboarding and, and I often talk to my subscribers and clients about there's also a phase I call the honeymoon phase. So it's, it's past the setup and getting going, but it's in that like early phase. Like in your thing, it might be like, we need to collect enough historical data in order to actually start giving you something beyond just current state, uh, which again, sounds like a big value. Just getting current state of the machines was, was actually a big win. But can you talk to me about like what that experience is like? And do you design machine metrics as a product and service that begins with like, unpacking the, it looks like you have some kind of Wi-Fi device uh, or an edge device that do they like cable that up and, or do you guide them through that? Or is it all like self-service where they, they know all the machines to plug in and they got to run ethernet and Wi-Fi and what's that whole like onboarding to honeymoon look like? So we'll start with uh, the actual machine integration. As you might imagine, there's many different networks out there. Some of our customers, um, you know, they haven't even wired up their machines or their wireless is bad or, you know, it's literally just, you know, somebody's, um, you know, brother's son went and ran network cable and didn't really know what they were doing. This is more <laughs> like, believe it or not, larger facilities than you might think. And, uh, you know, we come in and the network is a mess. And uh, those are pretty difficult integrations. And one of the reasons why we kind of went with um, cellular and Wi-Fi so that um, we can avoid... Yeah, our customer having to you know, run network, but half our customers can install machine metrics themselves. Uh, we provide the instructions and the videos, and and we encourage that. So you know they have this very simple device, but they do have to. It's powered by the machines. So they have to open up the electrical cabinet, plug it into the machine, and you know put in a screwdriver. So it's not nothing. But um, but then the other half, we actually send. We have a field integration team that will go that'll go on site to to install this device or some of the, more, the older, more complicated machines that that needs like an electrician to to figure out. Um, we're we're continuing to work on improving that, and we really want to get to a point where all of our customers can install themselves. But that's really hard. Mm-hmm. So the so once they're so once the machines are actually reporting streaming data, we'll onboard them, and we have a customer success team, and uh, we'll go through. Um, usually it's like, uh, it's 
three one-hour sessions of onboarding um, to you know tie into their other systems and so that they can actually learn how to use the product effectively. Uh, and then usually they're they're really excited about that and you know they'll they'll go a few months and and what um, what we typically do is we'll start with like sort of benchmarking phase. So you know we'll just start stream data for a while and then once we actually visualize that you can see the increase in machine utilization. Often it's 10, 20% increase just by showing the data. Mm-hmm. But then after after a while, so they've they've already experienced that increase, you need to kind of show them the next piece so that so you feed them, okay, so now let's get into you know setting up notifications so that you can be more proactive when there's a problem. And and uh, so you know I think part of what um, what makes a SaaS product you know so unique and so valuable is that we're continuously improving our product. And uh, so our customers are looking for that. You know, they're paying a subscription every year. So, you know, they want to see something you know new every time that they write that check, and mm-hmm. uh, that that can keep them excited. But you're right; there is a honeymoon period, right? That first that they're they're all so excited, and you know, sometimes that um, if you don't get the right team engaged, you know, that can cause problems uh, down the road where you know you know you, you get disengagement. From an experience standpoint, are there things that you've learned about that you're like, I, I had no idea we needed to spend time on that, but that's actually really important. And we're, lo- you know, we're losing customers or drop off or something like that. And it maybe, maybe it wasn't even super technical or didn't have anything to do with AI or machine learning, but it was trivial. Yeah. Did you learn anything like that? Yeah. So, um, you know, despite the fact that our customers can go into the reports and, you know, and unsurface all this information, set up, you know, the alerts, um, they need, they really need to, their hands held through that process. And, you know, we need to continuously go back. That's why we have a customer success team. It's kind of like a free consultant in a way where, you know, they'll actually go through the data, you know, identify problems and opportunities and present that to them in like a quarterly business review. And uh, that has been very, very effective. Mm-hmm. So, so that's where, you know, we need to be continuously engaged. So if you don't do that, then customer could become disengaged and, you know, and occasionally we'll have a customer that, you know, if we didn't have the right team involved, we did a bad job onboarding, you know, when it comes up for renewal, uh, they would churn. Got it. Do you think that's because the, like, is the goal to take those findings that are currently being hand delivered with a consultant or you're a customer success person and get them into the product? Like, oh, we really need like a quarterly, like, you know, Nest sends out your, how did you do this month on your electricity rate? Like, does that inform uh, the product or do you see certain things as just like, we're always going to want a human to go do this. And even though we could, you know, use software, we're going to still do it with a human. We're always trying to productize. Uh-huh. So, but the problem is that you have so like each customer could have such different problems. Right. So to do that across the board. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we're a product company, so we're not, you know, looking to make money in professional services. Mm-hmm. But despite that, you know, we found that uh, like our data science team, you know, we brought them into the sales process earlier on. So they can understand what some of the problems are and then unsurface the data in unique ways. And mm-hmm. that actually ends up driving our product because you know, we start to see some commonality across customers and then we'll look to productize that. Right. But before we were doing that, it was like, hey, it would be great to add this feature. It, we put it on the roadmap and it never, we never get to it. Mm-hmm. But by having, you know, having the data science team actually being able to unsurface that information more quickly yeah, it's it is work. It's manual, but it's extremely valuable. Right. So we found that that you know that ends up being more of a product driver than anything. It's just mm-hmm. you know what we're learning from the data science team. So what overall then, just as we get kind of towards wrapping up here, 
Is there like a general thing that you find the most challenging that you have to kind of keep an eye on in terms of design and, and just overall uh, user experience for, for these floor operators and, and the, the man, their managers and all of that? Like what's hard to get right? Well, I think it's hard because we're a technical company. Yeah, we're a young startup. We're really good at, at designing sort of like really cool features. And, you know, some of these are, you know, really engage younger workers. But trying to, to build a product that serves all of our users is really difficult. And, you know, I think that that's where you really sometimes have to go against, you know, sometimes against your own gut feeling. Like, hey, this is, this is amazing. Go with it. This happens to me all the time. It's like, get this done as fast as you can. Mm-hmm. But no. <laughs> Pause. Talk to the customer first. Yeah. And I find myself, like, constantly arguing myself over that. <laughs> like, no, that's right. Like, let's do this right. Let's talk to the customer. It takes more time. I mean, that's a lot harder than it sounds. No, it takes discipline, right? And over time, I bet you can start to feel like we know what's best for them. We, we eat and drink this stuff all day long, but there's still that check sometimes that you, you need to go. And a lot of it comes down to being, again, empathetic and like taking, taking your assumption hat off and asking like questions that are not biased and leading, like especially if you have an idea how it should work, I always try to go in with those and, and ask the questions as neutrally as possible. If anything, like now, my age and experience, I like to go in and try to find a fault in my assumption. So I'll ask questions to uh, negate what I think the solution might be. Like, do you ever have this problem? And I'm almost hoping they'll say no to, to remind me that we have to go do this. And, you know, <laughs> sometimes you sometimes they surprise you, sometimes they don't, and they validate that you're on the right track, which is great. But I, I think you're right. You have to fight that urge, especially when you know the domain really well. And, and you may know those machines or the data better than they do, you know, at some point. But having that open dialogue is, is critical. So well, it's, you're, you're biased. And, and that's where, you know, bringing on sort of uh, fresh eyes. Right. What we just did. Um, you know, I'm excited to see the results of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think I've become too biased and too confident <laughs> in what we're doing is right. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And this has been great. I'm, I'm curious, do you have just from your experience, it's your third startup and, and now you're in this kind of IOT and analytics space. Like, do you have any recommendations or like advice for people that are working in this space, perhaps with monitoring tools or hardware, software with analytics, like any parting words of, of, of wisdom? <laughs> yeah, I would say that um, the industrial space it provides the biggest opportunity for, you know, for a startup company to, to go really big, but not really fast. It's a slower moving industry. And uh, one of the reasons why there hasn't been a ton of investment in this space is due to that, due to that fear that um, it takes longer for a company to, to mature. And, you know, we're seeing that like it's, um, you know, we, we started in 2014, we raised our series a last year and um, you know, in, in 2018, but wow, we're really picking up steam now. And, um, you know, I think that that's uh, one of the challenges is just like being able to have the fortitude to like to push through and get to that point where you can really gain momentum. It takes a little longer in, in IoT. There's a lot of components that you have to get right. And it, you have an industry that's a little slower to adopt. Just to kind of close that thought out, is that because the, your, your MVP, your, your minimum valuable product is so large just to get to something of value? Or it's not so much the product is hard, but the, the initial sales are difficult because of the culture? Or like what, what specifically was it that was hard? Well, I think it's, it's more of the industry itself. It's, um, you know, it, manufacturing is the biggest um, the biggest industry in the country mm-hmm. produces the most amount of data, but has the least digital penetration. And 
that's because um, let's let's face it, it's the last industry to really adopt you know big data, and uh, so I think it, it's just it really ends up being the um, I think the industry itself. But the product is also very difficult. You have the machine connections, um, you have the hardware element, the software element. There's a there's a lot of pieces uh, that you have to get right. Well, great, man. This has been uh, really fun, and I hope our listeners have enjoyed hearing about your your journey here in the industrial IoT space. So, where can people find out more uh, about you? Are you on Twitter, or LinkedIn, social media? Where where can they find you? Well, uh, I'm not a very big Twitter user, but uh, definitely LinkedIn. So, okay. um, just Bill Byther is my name. You can find me on LinkedIn, and of course, the website machinemetrics.com. Mm-hmm. Um, spelled like it sounds. You can find more information there. Cool. Well, I will put uh, a link to both of those places uh, in in the show links. And uh, yeah, thank you for so much for coming on. And, and I wish you well with Machine Metrics going forward. Yeah, well, thank you so much. All right. Take care. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. If you did enjoy it, please consider sharing it with the hashtag Experiencing Data. To get future podcast updates or to subscribe to Brian's mailing list, where he shares his insights on designing valuable enterprise data products and applications, visit designingforanalytics.com slash podcast.